Hi Kyle, this is Sheila. Um, I am sitting in my kitchen in the southeast of Ireland and I am just finishing a painting that I did of a friend of mine, Grace. She's a pro surfer and um, I'm doing a series of Strong Women and the Sea at the moment. So the reason why I am sending you this message is to say thank you for entertaining me at 5am every morning before the kids get up. Uh, I've loved your podcast. They're absolutely brilliant. The content is fantastic. I originally started listening to them because you were interviewing um, an Irish surfer, uh, Fergal Smith, and uh, we're a little surfing family in a surfing community down here. So um, it definitely caught my attention and I haven't stopped listening since. So wishing you the best of luck and hope you got lots more coming because I've got lots more painting to do. Hello, Sheila. Thank you for sending that in. I got the attachment that you sent of the painting that you were describing in your voice memo. You are very talented. Keep painting, and I will keep recording podcasts. And to anyone else who wants to send me a voice memo, I love getting them from you. Just record it on your phone using the Voice Memos app. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from, some details about your surroundings. Keep it under one minute. Email it to info at kyle.surf, and I would love to play it. And thank you also to everyone who gives this show a rating on iTunes. Uh, it helps me book guests, hard to get guests, because if they see that there are hundreds of people who are commenting saying, hey, this is a cool show, um, it, sh it, it is a show that sitting down with me is worth their time. So thank you to everyone who gives this show a rating on iTunes. It takes less than 30 seconds. Thank you also to Dylan Snyder from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers for connecting me with my guest today. Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is one of the best hunting conservation groups. I recently became a member of Backcountry Hunters and, and Anglers, and I hope you do too. I will put a link to Backcountry Hunters and Anglers in the description below. Um, they're a, a, just an awesome organization, and you should learn more about it. And thank you also to the Alaska Marine Conservation Council. This is a nonprofit dedicated to protecting and promoting the integrity of Alaska's marine ecosystems and the health of ocean-dependent communities. The Alaska Marine Conservation Council plays both leading and supporting roles in advancing policy and management solutions for healthy fisheries and marine ecosystems in the North Pacific through federal and state processes. Among other leading issues, foundational goals include reducing bycatch, protecting habitat, bolstering diverse fishery access for community-based fishermen, supporting low-impact harvest methods, and prioritizing science-based management. The Alaska Marine Conservation Council is a project of the Nell Newman Foundation. The Nell Newman Foundation supports this podcast, and they support great work all over the world. So check out the Nell Newman Foundation and the Alaska Marine Conservation Council. This podcast is also brought to you by RPM Training. RPM Training is a NorCal-based active lifestyle brand founded in the idea that legit, purposeful, functional training is the foundation of a truly full, adventurous life. As many of you know, I've been on the road from Colorado through Wyoming up now into Montana, and the workout equipment that I've brought with me is a dumbbell and a jump rope. The jump rope is made from RPM training, and I swear to God, it is the best jump rope in the world. It will make you feel like Rocky Balboa, all right, from Rocky 1. 
the first time, back when he was in his prime, when he was a strapping young stallion. All right. I have a buddy actually who went to Sylvester Stallone's party once and he went to it and Sylvester Stallone had an ice art piece made out of him. And it served drinks, apparently. That's how you know you've made it. Or you're a crazy egomaniac who gets ice chiseled of your face at your own party. Anyway, I love RPM's jump ropes. And I want to give you a workout right now. Uh, it's a little bit of a challenge. But this is a workout that I've done recently. It's just a 20-minute workout. Uh, as many reps as possible. You're going to do 100 double-unders with a jump rope. You're going to do 20 push-ups, 30 lunges, and 40 sit-ups. So all you need is the jump rope. You can head over to rpmtraining.com, type in the code name KYLE10, get 10% off, and then do this workout below. I'm going to keep it in the bio as well. And if you do this workout enough, one day you will throw a party with yourself chiseled in ice with Dom Perion and freaking Patron just going straight into the mouths of people who want to be just like you. So thank you to RPM Training for supporting this podcast. Alright. And finally, this podcast is made possible by Santa Cruz Medicinals. And you know why I said it was made possible by Santa Cruz Medicinals? Because it actually was. Their founder was the dude who convinced me to start this podcast more than four years ago. So shout out to Brendan. He is a good dude, and they make great products that I can stand behind wholeheartedly. They make CBD coconut oil. They make CBD face masks. One of my personal favorite products of theirs is the tincture. I put a few drops of it on my tongue before I go to bed. It helps me sleep better, and it helps me with sore muscles. You can head over to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name KYLE10, and have at it kids with 10% off discount code. They also support the book club. So thank you to everyone who has signed up for that. It's been a really fun experience um, sending you books that I love just once a month. I send you a book that I've been digging as well as a CBD tincture at a greatly discounted price. So you can head over to kyle.surf. To check out the book club. This month it is Atomic Habits. This episode of the podcast is with Steve Ranella. Ranella is the host of the Netflix series Meat Eater. He's the host of my favorite hunting podcast, the Meat Eater Podcast, and he is a author who has written numerous books, including American Buffalo. I prepared for this episode for over a week. I read most of his work. I had a whole list of questions planned out. And then I sat down at Ranella's house and very quickly realized that hunting is probably the last thing that this guy wants to talk about with me. So we talked about it a little bit, but this conversation went much more in the directions of journalism, philosophy, ethics, travel. I greatly enjoyed it, and I hope you do too. So please... Welcome to the show, Steve Ranella. Just the act of, of hunting in and of itself, right, is this, it's a very unique activity because you have... It has ethical ramifications. 
cultural, uh, historical. Um, and I've been interested in how much you have kind of taken those adjacent avenues. Um, and I was wondering, had you, have you always had an interest in, in history when you got into hunting? Yeah, for sure. Not in environmental history, but in, um, just in how people used to do things. When I was a little kid, I would just check out the same books from the, I think that's true of a lot of little kids. I just check out the same books from the library all the time. There's this book called Trap Lines North. It was about fur trappers in Canada. It was like a journal of fur trappers in Canada from the 20s and 30s. And um, I would just check that book out all the time. And then I would read books about, um, a lot of books about Daniel Boone, a lot of books about Rocky Mountain fur trappers, beaver trappers. And just viewed it as, uh, I just viewed it as like, how to, it was like a way to read about when things were better. It was like being born too late. All the cool shit was over and I would go read the books because it just seemed like that would have been a better time to be alive. Um, and felt that way for a long time. Right. I, I just felt that in my daddy would even, my dad would even say like, Oh, you know, you were born, um, you know, 200 years too late or whatever. And it was just, I like, I, I didn't read history to learn about, history i just read history to experience what i felt was a would have been a preferable time to be born Hmm. i've read in uh, your book american buffalo that one of your favorite phrases is nomadic hunter Mm -hmm. why is that would have been better (laughs) (laughs) yeah i just like this ideal of uh yeah i just there's this, there's this thing that I talk about too much. Like, like I talk about native, non-native stuff too much. It's just too interesting to me. I think like my interest in it outweighs everybody else's interest in it. And like, what's this ongoing, never ending conversation about what belongs, right? What belongs in certain places. Um, and I'm kind of in love with this moment, which is that, we don't know when it was, but there was a moment when like the first humans step foot, you know, in the Western hemisphere. It's so, like the first humans walked into the new world and there's no way they knew that they were going to the new world. Right. You probably had generations were born and lived right and died on what is now the Bering Land Bridge with no sense of we're crossing this thing to get somewhere, but still with like astonishing rapidity, like with just astonishing speed, people went everywhere, like hunting and foraging and stuff. Like they just had this real, it it has to have been, I don't, I don't think it, that these people were talk, I'm talking about right now. I don't think they were motive. They were being moved by warfare. I don't think they were being moved by a depletion of resources. I don't think they were being moved by disease. I don't think they were being moved by overcrowding. It was just, kind of, it has to have been this like, what's over there? What's over there? What's over there? What's over there? 
even to the point where they'd come up against obstacles and then go around the obstacle, which is an enormous leap of faith. Yeah. Because no one's ever been there. It's like, because the world could fall off right there. Yeah. It's not like someone said like, hey man, you know, I've been there and it's cool. No one had been there. Like why? Yeah. And so like this idea of like, just like nomads, you know, like these like people just wandering around. Haven't you checked it on all trails yet though? <laughs> like, there's no Have reviews. we strafed this route yet? Yeah, there's no reviews. It's just like how in the world, like what would be, right? How would you go through like a shitty area with just sort of this blind hope that on the other side of the shitty area, it gets sweet. There's going to be a better area. <laughs> I love it. There's going to be some, uh, yeah, some damn good stories. It's just like that. Yeah. No, yeah. Like being, uh, just like nomadic and wandering around. Yeah. And you know, I also have like, I've been afflicted for a long time with kind of a horrible wanderlust, uh, and, uh, um, which gets in the way of things. And so I, 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 you know, to have that be that that would be just your main, your main thing in life is, is like a pleasant thought. Yeah. You're like, Hey, I'm just living more like the hunter gatherers. I got to take this next trip. Yeah, exactly. Um, I recently interviewed a writer named Tim Cahill. You Mm -hmm. know who that is? Oh, I'm glad. I didn't know he's still, yeah. What's he He, doing now? (laughs) He lives about 40 minutes away from here, uh, in Livingston. And he's just sharp as a tack. Well, he used to write these really, really funny pieces for outside. Out there. Right when I first started writing for outside, I was on their masthead, but wrote for them quite a bit long. I wrote for them actively before I was on their masthead. But back then he was like, he was like the, 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 you know, if you could be like Tim Cahill, you were kicking ass. Oh yeah. He's really funny. He's very funny. Well, he, um, the reason I bring that up is because he has, when, when I was talking with him, he said, you, you can mold experience into a pneumatic device. So it's a way to organize your life and the way you see the chaos of the world through storytelling. Um, and he said, I don't know if you know this, but just uh, a few years ago, he was he was uh, rafting down the Grand Canyon and he fell out of the boat and he died and they had to do CPR on him and he came back and he said that on the other side, he didn't see any blinding white light or, you know, all any of his relatives or anything. But in this article that he wrote, um, he said that he feels that the, the great arc of story has been the most meaningful and deepest, most spiritual aspect of it. Um, and those times when he comes back from a trip that just seems totally chaotic and he sits at his computer for a few hours and some funny idea comes to him that he feels maybe didn't even come from him. Yeah. That's the closest to God or whatever he wants to say. Um, however you want to put it, he's ever come to. Huh? That's interesting, man. Um, I was just thinking about this this morning cause uh, it's such a hassle to be going places all the time. And sometimes, you know, like I, I used to like to drink a lot. And um, you know, like the thing, I don't know if you went through this, but if you like to drink a lot, you're always waking up in the morning and you're vowing to not. <laughs> yeah. And drink. then by 5 p.m., you're like, oh, you're, so, you're so thirsty. That coffee's making me a little jittery. I could use something to take the edge off. All the time you spend, all the time I would spend like, hyping myself up to not drink for like a week or tonight 
whatever. And you'd always cave. And like right this morning, we just were out with our, you know, we're in the, we're raising young kids and trying to like, you know, expose them to just being out and doing stuff and going all the time. And, and it's, you know, parts of it are exhausting. And just this morning I was having this like, that same drinking conversation, but about going away all the time with my, you know, like what's wrong with just being at home? Why can't you just be happy at home tonight? <laughs> Next weekend. Yeah. We're not doing anything. But then knowing, like knowing that like, you know, uh, that won't hold. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that won't, the vow, you won't keep the vow. You know, when I was talking to Tim, he said, um, the difference between going on a trip where you tell a story and one where you're looking at experience journalistically is so different than one where you're just going on the experience. Um, and he said that a lot of those, the trips that he took where he wasn't vividly noticing details that he knew he could turn into a story uh-huh. fell sort of flat for him. Do you, do you ever feel like the trips that you take where you know you're going, you're tasked with being both, um, you know, the host and the writer of the show. Do you feel like those story, those trips mean something different to you than the ones where you're just going out on the experience and then as soon as it's done, it's done? Yeah, because the set of goals is so complex that there's a lot more traveling for work or doing a trip for work whether it was when I used to be a writer um, or now doing hosting television or or various other projects I do. Um, I guess it used to be like exclusively a writer, I should say. There's this really complex set of expectations and goals and things that you need to have happen to, to achieve success, which at that point, success is measured by the quality of the product you create out of it. So it's more exhilarating and more exhausting and demanding when you are monitoring and, and, and watching and sometimes like literally counting noticeable things. And you're living something in a way that you're assembling its recreation on paper or on screen. It can be especially like that. One might call it bad. I don't want to put a value judgment on it, good or bad. But even if you start to see the world through act structures, which happens to yeah. me, like you, like when you start to see the world in act structures, You're like I don't greet my wife. Act one, <laughs> act two. She says everything is fine. <laughs> I see where act three is going. Yeah, it's like, like when you get to that, it's you've entered a, a um you know, just a complex way of experiencing something. I now, uh, sometimes a little bit struggle in an identity way with just having, um, audience less experiences. And I, I, I really like it, but I sometimes feel as though, um, I, I catch myself feeling like things have been sort of like too simple or easy. Yeah. Like I, it's like, I, I'm like breathe, like I'm relaxing in a different way. And I'm like, why does it feel like you this? Feel oh, like I'm, right. I'm nose breathing. Something has to be wrong. Yeah. There. And it's like, why is this happening? It's like, Oh yeah. Cause I'm not like monitoring 
um, I'm not like monitoring what's going on in terms of what it'll be like later. Yeah, I read a story that you wrote for Outside in 2008 called A Thousand Miles of Nada. Mm -hmm. I think you were like 34 at the time. And one thing that's funny about that story is that the whole, the whole premise of it is you going down to Baja with your brothers to do as little as possible. And there's this line in it where you said the, um, you know, we've, we've been able to grow with money and shrink with time. And we spend more time now thinking about what the trip is going to be like and planning for it than actually being on the trip. Yeah, you're, comp- which, you're compressing it. Which I found paradoxical because you're writing a story <laughs> <laughs> about <laughs> not doing exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that's another like that's another thing that comes from. Um, that's not even like a showbiz thing. That's just the thing that comes from like having responsibilities. I think is going into things with this this set of needs, like way outside of producing content material, um, just like. You know, when you have like your vacation and it's like, by God, this is my vacation, but yeah. you know, and I have expectations for this vacation. I think when you're younger and, and don't have any walls sort of closing in around you time wise, <laughs> you're just much more, uh, easier to please. Right. You know, it just be like days can go by and that, in that era, your twenties or whatever, I don't know what, what era it is, different people, different ways, but like days can go by and nothing happens and it's fine. And later you want like a very tight compressed, like you want shit to be vacation. Like now, you know, the Louis CK bit where he says, you know, now that I'm a dad, I go on these little vacations where I I put my kids in the car and then I walk around the other side of the car and that's my vacation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, I, I now like I've, you know, I'm 46 so just in the last year, I've started to sort of, I've gotten to a point where I'm not young fantasizing about when I have like a real life. I have taken, I've honestly taken to, I now fantasize about like my retirement <laughs> and just how damn relaxing it's going to be <laughs> and all the ways I'm going to waste time. <laughs> I know, you know, when you were younger, I know that you wanted to, be a trapper uh-huh. but then the prices of the market wasn't supplying that so you yeah. switched to journalism where there's just a ton of money I, I i love the pivot you're like there was no money in trapping so i figured i'd be a freelance journalism <laughs> journalist well, rel- yeah relative to that just shows you how dismal trapping. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's more a comment on fur trapping than it is on journalism yeah <laughs> um when you when you made that pivot and you're going after some of those uh, stories when you were young and you had more time, did you feel like you could enjoy it or were you so motivated and ambitious to get here that you missed some of those experiences early on? I remember the first assignment, um, the first time I got sent on a magazine assignment. When you say like when you were young, you mean like when I was young, like as a writer. Yeah, young no, as okay, a writer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, just starting out. Like so, you're, yeah. you're freelance or you're, you're just starting to write for outside. You know, my first assignment I got sent on. I, d- I did st- stuff on spec, but then I finally got like I landed like an assignment to do a cover story. And um, went and it was really funny because 
I didn't take my responsibility serious because I, I, I went to Montauk, Long Island to do a story. And looking back on it, the best I can think of is that I was there. I wasn't thinking about what I was making. I was very focused on what is it like to be a guy? What is it like to be a writer on assignment? And am I living up to what it should be like to be like on assignment? And I measured it. I measured that trip, not in like what my story would be like. My story went up being a disaster. My editor made me rewrite it like a thousand times and it was still like not good. Like it was not a good story. No one was happy with the story because all I was thinking about is like, you're on assignment. When a writer's on assignment, I think they're supposed to like drink a bunch and yeah. be zany, right? You, so I need, I need to like make sure I'm being like, I'm drinking and being zany because I'm a writer on assignment. Yeah, you, you got like on the campaign trail <laughs> under your arm. You're like, let's do a bunch of blow and read. And oh, for drink, sure. Drink some gin and then we're going to start writing at 4 a.m. because that's what Hunter would do. Exactly. It was like that. And I didn't even realize it until way later, but that is where my head was. My head was like, so, so here you are. You're like, this is all you've wanted. And now you're here like, do it, behave right. <laughs> Not like going, what I do now is now when I'm like out for work, I'm like intensely focused and I've just gotten good enough now. I shouldn't say good enough. I've had, I've done it long enough now where I, like I said, I've gotten to where I'm, it's so bad that I can, that I can experience life and act structures. Um, so just a, a, a way you change over time. It's like, it's, everything comes at a cost. Everything comes at a cost. And the, like at this point to have the career that I've had and to be able to do the things that I've been able to do through work, like as a job have been, you know, like unquestionably positive, right? Do I would do nothing differently, but one can't help but look at the ways in which, uh, like it, it comes at a cost in terms of your perception of reality and to get like another example to get at like what you're sort of asking about would be that um for me like my relationships with the outdoors used to very much be that i was just with my two brothers that i grew up with like we were always together we did all of our stuff together we hunted together nonstop. we fished together nonstop. we just like lived like that right and i was like man i would this is what i want to do i'd like love to be able to have these experiences and in time, you realize that doing that sort of came at the cost of being able to be with the people that it was you were trying to be with in the first place, you know, because they're not like on that ride. They like have their own things they do for a living. And, and so looking back, you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. It was supposed to be that it was supposed to be like that. But it became a different thing. A great thing, but different. I brought up uh, Thompson earlier, and he said that later in his career, um, he became so famous that when he would go to report on a story, more people would be crowding around him than the politician that he was reporting on. And he said that one of his biggest fears was becoming a caricature of himself. Well, he failed at that. Yeah, he sure did. I mean, you can't. We were talking about this the other day because my friend Savannah, who's staying with us right now, was reading Hell's Angels. 
And she was, <laughs> he'd hate a hundred times and hate to hear this. She just knows the character. She never read his work. She just knows the character. And she's reading the book being like, I- I'm just surprised by how good it is. <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> like, he, like anything he did has been overshadowed by like him. Right. It's and not, so you have no this content. Like, You're not looking at the content anymore through an objective lens. No, it's just so, so to, to, to be so aware of this persona that then when you look at his actual work where he's writing about a motorcycle gang, Hell's Angels, and to be surprised that it's good, it was really funny because... <laughs> Uh, in his view, they'd probably be like, well, that's the first thing you should do. I'd prefer that you went and read my work. And then you're like, wow, he's an interesting guy. And then later on, like, come <laughs> yeah. find out about me. But how is it that you're finding, like, how do you know about me but not my stuff? Um, do you, have you had to deal with that? Se- um, have you had to figure out ways to center your own identity as you've had so much attention come at this thing that you just started doing out of this very, from this very simple place of like loving to go hunting with your brothers. Oh, like, do you, do you mean, do I feel like I bought, how have you had to find it? I defined my life too narrowly. No, no. Like how, how have you resisted becoming a caricature of yourself? Oh, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that I, I, I don't know that I haven't. I hope I haven't. I don't really know if I haven't. Um, probably, you know, if something has helped that, it's probably having, uh, imagine having kids, you know, because it, it, um, there's a lot of like raising young kids. There's a lot of like, not you, Right. There's a, there's a lot of not you in that. Yeah. Especially no. when they're young. It's just like, a, it's like very physical. It's just like a lot to do, a lot to keep in mind. So I think that I've maybe luckily, I mean, besides just being lucky to be a father, right? And live with your family and live with your wife and your kids. And that, that I like that. Um, I think that maybe that's one thing that like helps you avoid that is there's so much going on that um, there's so much going on that doesn't, that, that involves other people that it helps pull away from that. But I, I think that I, I could see how it, I could see how it happens to people. Uh, yeah. I don't think you can ask the person if they did or not. I don't know many people that would say they did. And then everybody would be laughing at them behind their back. Yeah. It's like the old adage of the two young fish swimming along and the older fish says, Hey boys, how's the water? And then the one young one looks at the other and says, what the hell is water? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for sure like that but oh yeah that's a that's a great it's a great question um yeah i don't know when you're on a trip um journalistic trip do you have a note-taking process yeah but i never refined it because i i I never got dialed the way i've had other stuff get dialed into my life um every I did three narrative books. The first three books I did were narrative books. Um, and you know, like for your listeners, mean like narrative nonfiction, like like a, a telling a A to Z story, right? The beginning, middle, end describes a, a thing, D- describes a sort of journey, right? It could be, you know, emotional, physical, mental, but like a, a journey. Then I've done a bunch of books that are not narrative, 
or a handful, small handful, an, an equal number. Oh shit! Maybe then four after that that were not narrative, that were more instructional. Um, and the note taking that I did for the narrative ones was like each time I began one. It was like I was starting over again. I never got a system down. Um, and doing magazine stories, I never got a system down. I always suffered the same things. I would always want to write the end first. Um, I would always be really dismayed at how bad my notes were. I couldn't believe the amount of follow-up work I would need to do. I would write things down and then later be interested in everything I kind of remembered someone saying but that I hadn't written down. And, and I just was horrible at it. Um, and probably would have, I like to think I would have arrived at like a system, um, that I have now. Like we make a TV show, we made a hundred and some episodes of a TV show. We, at this point, I have like a system where I could describe to someone, here's how we work. But an important part of that is we, um, and when you get like a, a, a team of people assembled, assembled and there's expertise, there's areas of expertise that people oversee, it becomes a uh, system becomes easy. Right now, like after doing that many of something, there's like a, I have a, there's a describable way that we do the things and there's a describable way that we do note taking, but it took like that much repetition. If I go back to doing it at some point in my life, if I go do another, uh, narr like another narrative book or, or begin traveling just for that purpose, just to write, just like traveling for written word, I'll probably have to go back and reassess and be like, what should be my, um, what should like, how should I do this? Now that I know how to do stuff, because I've done a bunch of things like in media. Now that I know, I would probably come up with like a very good way to do notes and it would be based around cloud computing. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't be based around, I would be, I would put things in a notebook and then um, move them into something that was manageable and that I could organize because I still have a lot of my writing notebooks and looking through them now, they're insane. <laughs> Just. It's just like oh. the sad faces and a tree. Just like, okay. yeah, crazy. Just like like in, like to do lists and then like back to my story. You know what I mean? I just I, I didn't get. Um, I'm surprised I got as far as I got. Like looking back at how I used to work, and I tried to. And I remember reading about someone, some writer, using like a note card system, and I did a I did like a book on a note card system, and that was just ridiculous. I just read how some writer like writes down like sort of all the ideas that will go in the book on note cards. In a simple note card. And then, yeah. There's a writer named Annie Lamont uh, who wrote Bird by Bird, a really good book on writing, and she had a note, I know Annie, note card I know, I know the name, but I don't know if I've ever She's read it. She's a great writer. Cahill, I asked him the same question. He does, on the left side of a notebook, what happened, and he reserves the right side for how he feels about it later. <laughs> so he's like, this is a pine tree. Really? I don't like this pine tree. That's yeah, and he would, and he would always reserve the, you know, it was the what on the left side and then the, the why on the right side. That's great. Maybe the next time I do a book, I'll try that. You should. Because I'm not going to try that notebook, that note card shit anymore. Do you ever, if you're like on a hunting trip, glassing as a writer, do you ever try and use like the most literate, 
descriptive words possible. Are you ever like, you know, cause when you're, you're looking, you're like, okay, I got to describe like this little hillside. No, like, this but is a, here's a voluminous and verdant no. <laughs> hillside next to the austere mountain range. No, but my friends and I, the guys that I work with and, and also guys I hang out with have come up with, have arrived at a very good system for, for, getting other people to understand what it is you're looking at. But in terms of describing the hill, no, like I never, um, ever. And like being, I never practice in my head describing anything. <laughs> if, if it'd be a great, it'd be great. Well, if hunting ever gets to too easier for you, you could go on one where you're like, okay, we can only describe in metaphor on this hunt. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny that I never have like uh, photographers, right? They probably just go out and shoot just to shoot, right? And they kind of review what they're doing. And um, songwriters sit and, like, you know, mess around, right? And between albums, they just mess around and mess around, and something eventually comes up. And no, I never would <laughs> in my life went out and, like, took a stab at, like, <laughs> say a fella had to describe that tree, right? <laughs> What would I do? No, never, never. Uh, it's, it could be in your future. <laughs> I know. It's like I should start telling people they should do that. Like, just go out and practice describe. But the problem is with, with writing, I think, is that all the tools, right? All, all the, none of the tools mean anything. Um, let me put it in a different way. Let me not use a tools metaphor. None of the instruments mean anything in the absence of the orchestra. Right. When I was like studying writing in graduate school, we'd all talk about like the writer writers. Oh, he's a writer's writer, which meant to be like, he's a writer's writer. He's depressed. <laughs> no, it meant that they have be like beautiful sentences. No one gave a shit what all the sentences did, but they just had like beautiful sentences. It was like gorgeous sentence followed by gorgeous sentence. Followed by, and, and you're so distracted by the beauty of the sentences that people didn't care, didn't judge that they, that they never wound up, that all these beautiful sentences never wound up anywhere didn't matter. Like, it didn't take you anywhere. It was just, like, indisputably beautiful sentence. <laughs> yeah. Indisputably I, beautiful sentence. But, like, but what, like, I don't know, like, what are they writing about? It's, it doesn't matter. It's just the sentences. It's so good. I just it, get lost in their prose. Lost, yeah. And, and I think that any of that stuff, like, being, like, good at describing something, uh, you know, one of the writers I always admired so much was like Ian Fraser, and he has like just the funniest, um, the funniest similes and metaphors when he's writing, right? Like, he, I remember him describing a red tailed hawk on a telephone wire and the way its tail flicked, and he had equated it somehow to someone with like a deck of cards, like opening and closing it, like in a deck of cards shuffle, right? And just be like one, but he has all the other stuff. Like he has all the tools. He has all the instruments. He is the orchestra. But like, I remember like thinking about like that distinct thing, that like real gift for sort of metaphor and simile in describing visual things, like just completely unexpected um, descriptions of it was like this. And the like this would be like the weird, the thing you'd never think of. But then when he said it, you're like, oh, that is like I remember describing something as being as, as, as cool as the other side of your pillow. Like you flip your pillow in bed and it's like, <sighs> right. The Did, coolness. Yeah. 
And it's like po- poets are so good at that. Uh-huh. Poets, I would say, are the that's like the apex or comedians as well. Sure. They they'll find some kind of analogy that you would never think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I admired that stuff. Like I liked his ability to do that. And he could do I keep talking about the past tense. He's very certainly not in the past tense, but uh I, I, I read him in that way. I read him in that way at a certain time in life. And um and, and so looked at that and the, the the point being like think about like visual description and all that kind of stuff um i admire all those little things but i only like them now when it serves like this this process of of getting somewhere i work with a lot of photographers shooters like videographers and photographers and i like to tease them that um my like, dude taking pictures must be so much easier in writing because there's so many like the world is full of good pictures. Like there's just good pictures all over the place, but like good writing, it seems to be getting scarce. <laughs> yeah. It drives them crazy. Oh, it's so- and, and, and they point out all the ways of what I'm saying is not true, but I just like to tease them about it. You know, it's a very writer centric viewpoint. Oh yeah. It's like what I'm doing is way harder than what you're doing. <laughs> it's like the, you know, writers going on strike in Hollywood. Cause they're like, God damn it. We're the ones creating the stories. Exactly. Exactly. You can't do it without us. Meanwhile, all the actors are like, but we bring life to the moment. And you're like, bitch, the premise was mine. <laughs> Yeah, there is, yeah, there's an own yeah, people want to claim ownership of the hard part. <laughs> the, I feel like there was a big win for writers in the last uh season of Game of Thrones when the main guy who wrote the rest of it, he hadn't written the final series, so they went out and they had other writers try and complete the final s- season. And they couldn't cut it. And I didn't it, watch that show. And it was it was I mean, it was a uh, grave disappointment to the viewers because they were like, "No, Tyrion, he's he's way smarter than that. He would never make that stupid of oh, a move." And people are like, they realized they realized it wasn't the main guy that was doing all of those final scenes. You know, the, there's an old play called The Producers, and it's about like these producers and they're producing a play. And um, at one point in time, the producer, one of the producers, says, uh, "Next time, no writers." <laughs> Have you ever seen Wag the Dog? Oh yeah, it's great. Wag the Dog, and they yeah. have the you know they have the producer yeah. who shit's just going nuts, <laughs> you know, every every everything's on fire, and he's like, "This is nothing. This is nothing." <laughs> Last year, I solved a problem just like this, right? So it's like writers are they're they're known as the complainers, like nothing's working. Whereas producers can never have one complaint because the, the like the, they're. Uh, they realize that as soon as they start complaining, like they're the morale of the whole ship oh, and it's going to start apart. going downhill from there. Everything falls apart. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why any writers, man? Cause they're the ones that bring life to it. Mm-hmm. I, I think understanding those, um, understanding the complexity of story and what draws us in and why it draws us in and how this story could maybe be a metaphor for, mortality, you know, or like Cahill hit in his book, um, uh, hold the enlightenment. It's a really good book. It's one of his last ones. And he says that he feels that all adventure stories are really stories about mortality. Um, and that's what draws people into them. Hmm. And maybe, uh, maybe writers, a writer like Cahill just understands that better and how to, how to get that point across without it coming across as, schmaltzy 
Yeah, I think that it's, I don't see that. I'd have to hear him explain it, but I think that uh, I, I accept that it's helpful for him to view it that way. You know, that it's about mortality. Mm-hmm. But you don't think that? I don't know. I, I guess I don't understand. Does he mean mortality like you might die? I, I, I didn't have to hear him. What do you, I, don't, I don't know what he means. Yeah, I guess I would as well. Um, to put words in his mouth, I would imagine that it's that um, we are the only species that that is aware of our own mortality. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the actions that we're taking through life are to ward off that realization oh. and try and Im- immortalize ourselves through either building tall buildings you know, starting big companies or getting in touch with death in a closer way to help understand that concept better. Yeah. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Um, yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it that we, to be that, that we are, are aware of the end and therefore develop a checklist. Like the, looking for something to measure it by. Do you feel like being around so much death yourself has helped prepare you for death better in any way yeah. or yeah, the I death do. of friends in any way? Yeah, I think so. I've had close friend. I had a close friend. I've had friends and relatives and all kinds of things die. I had a close friend die. Yeah. I, I do think, um, it doesn't catch me by surprise. Right. We have a beloved family pet. Right. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be, I'm like very aware of, uh, about how long they live. Right. I'm aware of it as a biological specimen. I'm aware of it as like a member of a species and to understand, uh, sort of the, the Achilles heels of, of different species and things. I think that I'm, uh, yeah, hyper aware of death and how it comes, expect how it comes in a way you expect it, how it comes unexpectedly, and I'm aware of of all the give and take, you know, and all the push and pull. It's funny, man, because right now we're like struggling with COVID, right? Um, it's interesting to stop and imagine it. It's an organism. That is being, it's just being alive. It's reproducing, right? It's like this thing. I don't think it has no sense of entitlement, but it's something that's trying to reproduce and find homes and it's trying to spread its range. It's expanding its range, you know? And what, not that it has a view, but let's just imagine that it has a view, like this cell or whatever, right? That it has a view of how it, how it would perceive the guilt of doing what it does to society in order to expand its range and grow its population. Um, I don't know how much room COVID-19 has to ponder that, but I do sometimes think that it's interesting that we're in a situation, um, we're in this situation where we do get to or have to ponder the implications of our existence on others. I watched this, this is really harrowing footage. I don't know why it's harrowing to me, but there's this grizzly bear and it's uh, found a black bear den. 
and the it, it wants to eat the cubs and does get one of them um and the it's a giant right and there's a mother black bear who's trying so hard to uh trying so hard to keep it from consuming her cubs and it's and no matter how much like strength and anger this black bear musters it's not enough to really even register to this thing and it sort of is regarding her how you'd like regard uh like a person in front of you when you're in a gas station and you want to like open a certain fridge door to like grab the beer you want or whatever and they're like in your way and you're kind of like you can't tell they going right they going left do i be rude and just grab it you know do i i just want my thing but you're sta- you're standing there blocking and staring at the shit too long and i know what i want i just want to like just if i could just get what i right that's what his view of it <laughs> and i don't know but that's like my perception of its view of the thing was just like get out, like get out of my goddamn way i'm eating these cups yeah, i want the gatorade <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get a gatorade and get on my way you're on a speed bump you're a speed bump on my road to glory man and so yeah i do wonder about that all the time like um what and, and i think and i get a sense that some parts of us I wonder about, uh, and I wonder about why are we, um, I wonder about why do humans, me and people I'm close with and stuff, why do we view our species as being just so different than all the other species? Different sets of rights, you know, a higher value on life, right? And I look, I'm like, then I'm like, well, why do we? And then I wonder, well, uh, show me the anomaly in this system. Because I don't know that there are of the, of the, you know, whatever tens of thousands of mammals on the planet. Um, I can't think of other ones that don't somehow weigh out their own species as being of a higher level of importance than other ones. But I wonder, like, should I jump that and transcend that? And in some ways, I do. But I, uh, yeah, by being exposed to, like, what I'm exposed to and being exposed to, like, kind of, like, how I've lived my life, I, I have had to concentrate a lot to not miss anything, to concentrate a lot on on death and also the proximity I have to the death of things that will end up benefiting me. Like I have very close proximity to it. Um, and I think that other people haven't had that, but I think if they did, they would view everything in their life differently. If you, ha- if you lived in a house, okay. And you have a house and it's made of wood. And, and in the process of building that house, someone said, I'm going to come with, you're going to come with me and you're going to see every tree that is going to go into this house and there will be many of them. I want you to see every one of them fall over. Like I want you to see me go into the woods and we're going to select this tree and some of it is going to come from old growth coastal forests, and you're going to watch man. And then we're going to build this house for you. And then I want to see how you feel about this house. Having seen what we've seen. Um, you, of course you're going to think about your house differently. It's going to seem like wildly different. 
I feel as though um, if I went to see it, I would probably be better equipped to look and be like, yeah, I, I kind of uh, figured that's probably about what it looked like. You know, like I have seen it. So um, someone could probably, I would imagine that someone could look and they'd be like, oh, a person like that probably has trauma from this, you know, maybe. But I view it like I have a, a hyper, in some areas, I have a hyper realistic sense of what it, what is, what it, like, in, it, like what it means to be alive, like what, like what, it, what goes into life. Yeah. Yeah. You've asked a few more questions and you've walked a, a few miles more up that stream of disconnectedness mm-hmm. than most people have. Um, and I think that's valuable for people because it makes them tends to make them appreciate the present moment more. I'm sure you've fed game that you've killed to countless new meat eaters who appreciate that first bite more than they ever have, right? Because they they get even just a little glimpse of that story and it makes them see that moment a bit more vividly. And what it is when you take someone on that journey, like I think one of the great testaments of wild food, which is something I spent a great deal of professional and personal attention on. I've heard. Um, when you, when you show someone that it strikes them somehow as like a thing of beauty, right? Like to be like, uh, to, to go and, and, and see, let's just say like to go and see a, 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 a cottontail rabbit, right? To go to where a cottontail rabbit lives and to see a cottontail rabbit and get the rabbit and cook it and eat it. Um, they somehow, I would say without exception, and I've done this with dozens of people, they're, they're, there's like pre-selection, right? Because like there's pre-selection in the people I've done this with because they've been people who asked to, 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 to come along. So a statistician would come and look and right? They'd be like, well, sure, you found that without exception, they've all liked it, but without exception, they've all wanted to go do it. It's not like you're randomly selecting people off the street and then taking them out to get a rabbit. You might wind up that 75% of them are horrified. So I, I, when I say like without exception, the people I've invited into that world, they've all come into the world voluntarily and typically have sought it out. But when I've showed them that, they all regard it as a thing of beauty. Now, if you took them to see another food system play out, right, would, what would, would the batting average be so high about people who felt enthused about it? You know, meaning if someone said, if I was like, all right, man, we're going to, and I don't mean this dog on McDonald's, let's say he said like, we're going to go walk through a nugget, right? Would they come away from that experience being like, dude, unbelievable, eye-opening, really changes everything about how much I love, like I love nuggets even more now. Or if I walked them through it, would they be like, dude, man, like I, if I had only known, yeah. I would never, I wouldn't be eating those nuggets. Has your um, desire to be more connected to your actions, um, specifically around death, made you think about war any differently? I'll, and I'll, I'll phrase it like this, you know, for you to kill me right now would be a crime. Mm-hmm. But 
for the U.S. to sanction uh, a deployment in a certain part of the world, I think we have we are uh, actively engaged in war in nine countries right now. Has has this frame on the world of disconnectedness, you know, and trying to become more connected yourself, made you think about that concept any differently? No, it hasn't because I don't like. Again, I view my own species so differently and have such like different sets of expectations and things around like how humans treat humans. Um, I, my father was a a veteran. My father fought in world war two. He had me when he was old. Um, I understand that, that, that had enormous psychological impacts on him. Um, I empathize with and uh, support and feel great, like um, gratitude and uh, have like a, a emotional, even though it's not reciprocal, an emotional connection, a one-way emotional connection to all soldiers that have like served this country. Um, I've, I, I like, I, I view them and what they've gone through and sacrifices they've made. I view it as like completely outside of the broad context of the things that drove it to happen. So, um, I would like, I, I like, I don't, I don't know you're not inviting me to or asking if I did, I, I would never, um, think about or condemn any individual for having been involved in any action that this country took to that asked them to, or put them into a situation of doing something that they might later have felt was like morally compromised. In fact, um, on issues of, uh, in issues of prosecuting soul, like prosecuting our own soldiers, for things that we might later deem to have been war crimes or war crime like, I tend to have more of a view of like, uh, we took them and sent and trained them and sent them to do something right. It's our responsibility. And, and I, and I'm probably less likely than other people to, uh, feel that the, 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 the responsibility of, of certain individuals around, even things around like, like like the taking of life. Like I understood my dad's view on it, that he, when describing his time at war, he was like, to me, it was just as simple as this. It's like they wanted to kill me and and I wanted to kill them because I didn't want them to kill me. And that was where I was at morally through that. But to more directly answer what you're getting at, what I have friends that um, fought, in Iraq and Afghanistan, some of them quite a bit. And hearing them talk about it, I realized that there is, and talk about actions they took and things they experienced, I realized that there is an enormous amount of ground between us. Um, I can't get to where they're at. I can't get to where they're at. And the, and the soldiers that were, uh, soldiers I've met that were like just really heavily involved in combat, I think that and we're like very trained as specialists. I think that there's something in them that someone found 
Like someone looked for something in them and then really strategically and brilliantly developed that in them to get someone who can just go do the country's bidding um, without considering what it means to of the people on the other end of the gun, right? I don't have it. I see that they have it. I'm glad they have it. I don't have it. There's a huge, huge difference. And I'll meet a lot of soldiers who um, are, would be drawn to hunting. Uh, and when you ask them, like, well, what? And they're like, there's all, like all the similarities. And you might, you might jump to like, oh, you mean like killing, right? But it's, that's the last thing on their mind. The similarities being like camaraderie, uh, the gear, just messing with gear, being prepared, um, being out, having objectives, Right. But you'd be like, well, what about to shoot? Like, you know, when you shoot a deer, is that like training for war? And like, it's no, <laughs> it's just not. It's like, it doesn't even occur to him to think of the comparison. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's all the other trappings that remind them of something. But that it's like laughable to them that you would try to conflate shooting a white tail, like shooting with- a deer and then eating it to like going to some other country and shooting a stranger over geopolitical dispute and like what it takes to accomplish those two things that it's just a joke to them yeah that you it's a joke to them that you'd like find commonality in that yeah it shows that you've never been there yeah, <laughs> right. Like, right but it, it's uh i love kind of uh <clears throat> philosophizing on this kind of stuff because in in one way there's this um what we're talking about is being one step removed from your actions and how they impact the world, right? And you and I are one step removed, you know, being citizens of the U.S., mm-hmm. right? And there are wars happening with our tax dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are people that actually go there. I have a lot of friends who are soldiers as well. Um, and them, you know, what you're talking about, that thing in them, like, is it their ability to take it take their experience in life one step further to like, this is actually what it's like, or do they have something in their mind where it allows them to stay one step removed while going in deeper, you know, because there's being there. Right. And then there's what you think about it. I had a guy one time described to me, um, acquaintance slash friend described to me rating, um, compound a compound in afghanistan and he said we were in there you know doing our work <laughs> as though he was at his, an office you know he like was gonna and he's like you know doing our work like our job and uh and, and i and i caught that i never brought it up with him but i caught that and i'm like it's like, is that detachment or is that training? <laughs> you know, it, or is there, is that or is it the same thing? Yeah. Well, it certainly is an example of how malleable humans are. <laughs> put us in just about any environment and, uh, we'll try and make the best of it. Yeah. I can remember, I could tell you like where I was in Austin, Texas, and I could tell you where I was standing and like where he was standing when he like did that and said that. And I pondered that for days wondering about that. Like, is that like, like at what's detachment and what's just your reality, man? Like just your reality. Yeah. Last subject I wanted to hit. Um, you and I have both 
worked in the conservation world for quite a while and there was a big win that just happened. Um, can you talk about, um, the great American outdoors act and what that means? Not only, um, on the literal level, but what it means to you having worked in this space for so long. Yeah. Uh, there's a group I'm on the board of, uh, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, and they, along with many others, were you know heavily involved in lobbying for and raising awareness around this issue. And uh, the last two years, I've spoken with the president and CEO Whit Fosberg about sort of like the state of the union on conservation. And as much as um, the last year or two has seemed like political chaos, and you know, and um, even now with COVID and just like it's like chaos, you know. And he has this optimistic view and I don't think it's just marketing he has this view that in times um, like these you can actually do some there's some good work that can be done because people on the hill uh, people in the capital are like eager for something positive right and so he was like there's a lot of good things that have come up um, because when everything's just like gridlock, gridlock and negativity, then you find something that people can kind of rally around that might normally just get pushed down because everybody's hoping to attach shit onto it and put riders on there, you know? Um, you could just like get somewhere because they can be like, well, at least we can have this win. Um, and he was speaking in, in part optimistically about the parts of this that it would involve and it's multifaceted and there's a lot to it. But one of the main ways to, to think about and look at it, I think it's easily understood to people is everyone's familiar with international. I imagine everyone's familiar with like state waters and national waters. Do you know the point at which water becomes, um, I, I know it varies, but like you, you get off a state, a certain number of miles. I think it's fixed three, seven, I don't know what the hell it is. Anyways, you go off the coast into the ocean and at 20 miles, you're definitely there where you've like left state waters. Right. You're in, and in, that's in, when the gambling happens. Yeah. You're in national, not your, no, well, there's, it's when the you, cannons there's start like going off. U.S. waters and then international waters. Yeah. So there's like this vast area yeah. off our coast is considered like U.S. waters. Yeah. Meaning when you draw, like if you imagine the border between like Washington and Oregon, um, it doesn't stretch like in perpetuity out into the ocean, right? At a point we go like, it, it's U.S. waters, yeah, it's, bro. Yeah. It's like not, it's not Washington's water. Um, we lease oil, so we have oil leases out there. And the uh, leasees, the people who drill, pay um, fees to the U.S. government to access that oil. And initially, that extraction fund like the money that they're paying was meant to fuel not meant to is supposed to fuel conservation work and public access work so i want and it goes into this thing called the land and water conservation fund so these offshore oil leases fund the land and water conservation fund um and it's called the lwcf and i've heard a stat i don't know if this is true that every county in america has benefited from lwcf dollars it could be things as simple as, um, you know, community swimming pools, community trails, easements, on up to like major land acquisition projects. Uh, it's always been a little bit contentious and, and there's been a lot of waffling on two things like um, how much we say we're going to give it and then whether or not we actually cut the check. 
And the first time I went into effect, I can't remember the year, but the first time I went in, it was like what's called fully funded. And it lasted a long time. And everybody's like, oh, great. But it windowed out. And they've been haggling over and fighting over and like what it's going to look like going forward for years and people questioning the validity of the whole enterprise. Anyway, I once had a representative from um, uh, Rob Bishop from Utah who I recorded a show with him um, and he was the chair of the Natural Resources Committee at the time. I remember him suggesting to me, kind of flippantly, like kind of like to make a point, but suggested to me is what they really ought to do with the LWCF fund is train oil engineers. Like it shouldn't be for public access and, and habitat work. It should be like, we should use it to train more engineers and um, thinking like, wow, that seems wildly off mark for what we're talking about. So one of the wins of this is that we've now like gone ahead and fully funded the program, but also uh, are making sure that we're like activating the money going forward Um before we started recording, you and I had a conversation about a thing you'd been involved in early on, which is uh, is when you have a nonprofit or whatever you were bringing up banking, and like you could have a fund of money meant to do good, right? And this fund of money, like meant to do environmental good, say, but this fund of money could sit in a bank. And the bank that's sitting on the money could take that money and do crazy shit with it that really goes against your core mission. It, it could fund the direct project that you're trying to stop. Yeah. So you could have like, let's say you have a group that's opposed to offshore, <laughs> offshore oil drilling, for instance, right? Um, then that bank could be investing to bankroll exploration of offshore oil, which is a great point. I hadn't really thought about that much till you brought it up. But it's interesting that as much as our conversations go around the good stuff to come from... LWCF and making sure that this program and been pointing out all the ways and this is a great win for people and that component. Um, it's funny that many of the people who are happiest about this, if you ask them what are their feelings on offshore oil drilling, might tell you that it doesn't seem to them like a great idea. <laughs> but it's, but you, you, know, you lose, like, you can get drowned, you can get lost in the complexity of everything, man. You can get lost in the backstory of everything. But yeah, a great amount of like, like, a, like a, it's almost like universally liked. Um, there were some people who were, I can't even, do you know, like some of the articulated viewpoints of, of being opposed? No, I don't. They're it, out it there. It just seemed like a big win with a huge amount of funding going towards conservation. Yeah. I think some people like it just felt too governmenty, felt too governmenty to them. And then there were also concerns that, and I'll never understand this one, um, there's like a little bit of a LWCF custody battle about what sorts of projects could be done. And there are pe people who don't want um, the amount of acre. They'd like to see a net reduction in the public estate, right? So they'd like to see a net reduction in how many acres of land the federal government owns. And people were annoyed or concerned the LWCF money um, they would say that there's been a mission drift around LWCF, around easements and acquisition. And they were uncomfortable with the idea that we'd use this to sort of grow the public trust, that we'd enhance the public estate with this money and thought that the money should be put toward, um, their thing would be like maintenance and upkeep. So they would point toward 
uh, this this classic argument about against public lands in America would be like, uh, you can't take care of the we we can't take care of the land we have. So why would you get more? Why should we have more public land? We can't take care of the public land we have. And you like you would say like, what the hell does that mean? They'd be like, oh, there's a maintenance backlog. You know, and glaciers and maintenance backlog and these famous national parks. And they haven't done accessibility upgrades and such and such things. So why would we buy more? Um, and I think these are all proxy arguments against the idea that we should have. I think they're proxy arguments against this. I think it's proxy arguments against the idea that we would take land in this country and add layers of red tape that would interfere with aggressive exploitation of natural resources on that land because that is bad for certain business sectors. Like in all of this debate about public lands and people who like have a general suspicion of public land and maintenance backlogs and all the noise, I think that like at its core is a sense that like a fear that this means red tape. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it was a really powerful idea that was brought about when Reagan became president, right? Government is not the solution to the problem. Government is the problem, mm -hmm. which was largely brought about as a um, response to the 1960s movement where people started protesting in the streets. There was a lot of environmental gains, right? Endangered Species Act, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, and... My view is that that idea and the the power of that idea results in less government power, but more lobbying and private sector power, which tends to um, ultimately shift the burden onto the public sector because they can create laws you know, when you just take pharmaceutical, for example, like the pharmaceutical industry owns, they, they have so much influence within government that they can create a law like hospitals can't negotiate prices for drugs, right? Yeah. So that, so there's just a power shift into lobbyists. Like there's nothing inherently wrong with lobbyists. They're kind of explaining what this bill will mean to a government official. But when they can have that kind of influence, um, Lawrence Lessig is a guy who I've had on, on this podcast and he talks about how, how government, government officials will gain this kind of sixth sense due to lobbyists and the power of private oh, industry. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, this is a whole nother thing and, um, we're running out of time here. Uh, but I, I do think that that, that general idea was, was very powerful. And to what you're speaking to, like people who have a general just problem with government, um, it tends to have been brought down from that 1970s idea. Yeah, and I, I wish I was um, more of a more of a subject matter expert on sort of the the drifting of that. You know, when I was talking very specific about this, like the LWCF Land and Water Conservation Fund, for instance, um, if I was more of a subject matter on the drifting of that, but there is. Only because I'm trying to be fair when I brought up, like, what is the argument against it? I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I think that um, a sense that there's, like, a mission creep there, a sense that, that our, expe like, expectations have shifted more toward increasing public land, you know, increasing access to public land. Um, and I'm sure it goes much more complicated than that. 
but that's something that I think that an argument that I've been engaged with for a long time is around public lands and, and the art it's changed so much. I mean, it's changed so much in the last few years. We went from a argument just a few years ago, which was, um, our public lands valid. Right. And there was a movement to, uh, people wanted to divest like a divestiture of public lands, meaning like we had all this stuff. The argument would go that we had all this land, Sure, it's open to the public, but we're not able to take care of it. It's not policed properly. It's not monitored properly. Private landowners would do such a better job of taking care of it. We should get rid of this and settle debts and make money from it. Um, that's kind of like there are still people that feel that way, but they've been largely silenced. And I think one of the biggest expect, one of the biggest things that surprised people, um, and one of the people that changed that argument most be like the current administration where the Trump administration really didn't push the idea that we would sell off public lands. What they pushed was the idea that we would maximize their output, maximize, rev maximize revenue from them. So a lot of people who are defenders of public land are still left kind of going like protect public lands. And they're kind of like, yeah, yeah, we got it. We're not going to sell them. We're just going to do some other stuff on it. We're just going to do our stuff on them. And they really like kind of like slyly um, move the conversation. There are people who are like, yeah, 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 Mohammed, because that's not what I meant. <laughs> you know, that's not what I meant, man. Well, what's the slogan of public lands? The land of many uses, right? Yeah. So there is an argument that there is, that was the mission. And there's, there's another funny thing I, uh, I talk about in, in, in no, I shouldn't say a funny thing, but an observation I've had of w where there's a word, there's words that we get and even the politicians get it. And we mean we're serious, right? So like politicians got that people are real serious about public lands to the point where even um, historically, um, like the Republican Party had, you know, some years ago drafted up like a platform, right? And one of the platforms was this like general, I can't remember how they captured, basically expressed this general sense of reducing federal public lands. Um, they've kind of gotten that that's not flying anymore. And now um, politicians and, you know, of all stripes need to try to sort of want to sort of establish their, their love and respect for public lands. And that was a drift, but there's this other funny drift I've noticed is like access, like access is the thing everyone agrees with. If you went to any person on the planet or in the country and said like, do you support greater access? Oh, hell yes. Right. But there's a custody battle that emerged about like, well, what does that mean? Because in my mind, when I think of like increasing access, like the LWCF funds, for instance, would like increase access. I mean, like increase sort of the net volume of acres available to the American people upon which to hunt, fish, bike, ski, whatever the hell you want to go to. Like that's to me like increasing access. Some people would be like, no, I mean access, like I'm going to put a road up there, <laughs> you know, we're going to put in a highway increases access bro you like access right <laughs> it's kind of you know you got to watch the vocabulary very very carefully because it morphs and changes man yeah language is powerful uh -huh. all of the greatest you know all the people who we know hundreds of years ago they were all orators and writers <laughs> really writers you know who then spoke yeah martin luther king gandhi Hitler. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, last question, because this is a very specific one. And it's just one that I've thought about a bit. With so many people during COVID 
coming to Montana, you know, people who just want to experience the outdoors. Dude's out of control. Out of control. How is that going to impact the hunting season and animal movement right now? I think it'll have a major impact. Now, states usually, um, many in the in the West, this, this isn't the norm of the story in the East. In the West, states will typically cap how many non-resident licenses are available. Um, oftentimes, the state will not cap how many resident licenses are available. And a thing people are seeing is, uh, I heard a stat, and you should fact check me on this, but I heard that Wisconsin sold 40% more fishing licenses this year than last year in the spring. I think as much as it's people coming from somewhere else, it's people that are all the people that are just local, wherever you live in the country. Um, people that would normally be like, they're going to a festival. Right. They're going to a thing. They're going to a wedding. They're going to Cancun. Like whatever the hell they normally would have done. Yeah. They decided instead to go camping right. or go hiking. And on one hand, you want to applaud it because if you feel that like engagement with nature is good for you and is a positive, um, and I do, you know, that part of me would be like, oh, I should, I'm, I'm very happy. Let's celebrate this, this spring and summer when America rediscovered the outdoors and nature. But then there's this greedy part of you that, um, uh, wants to, bottle it up and hoard it for oneself and we just yesterday we're having a conversation like what will this mean for hunting season it's hard to picture but there are going to be yeah a lot lot of people stepping out for the first time i had a turkey biologist in georgia where you can just residents can just buy turkey licenses he got legitimately worried this spring because he had they had like they blew away their average turkey harvest very quickly and he was like um just got worried about are we going to need to rethink um our management systems like you know like hunting there's a we have a finite resource right and all of our rules and regulations are basically like how do we sort of fairly distribute access to a finite resource to not damage the resource and if interest in that resource doubles or goes up 25% um, we would have what we would call a, a, a net reduction in opportunity, meaning we need to regulate how many people take a crack at it. Um, and so those are all little things you're worried about, right? Would it be next year that what, a, something, a permit you might just buy now, like you might just go down to the gas station and buy your turkey license? Maybe next year they'd have to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, we got to have a lottery. Only half of you can go. There's so many of you now that want to go turkey hunting because of COVID. There's a parallel with surfing. And waves as a resource. People are just like, I'll just go surfing instead. Well, yeah, everyone wants to go surf. In, in Santa Cruz, it's been more crowded than ever. And you don't think necessarily about a wave just like an animal, but it, it is in the way that, you know, with just a few of you out, it's really fun and you can take your pick and it's a blast. But there is this, this uh, tipping point where that spot's ruined and you can't go there anymore because there's just too many people and too many people who are just learning how to do it. So... I, I applaud you being a voice in the hunting world to try and shepherd newcomers along to think about it well and think about their impact and what it really means to hunt because it's not just um, about going out and pursuing an animal. There are so many adjacent... It's a nexus point 
And there are so many adjacent um, things to think about when you pick up that bow or rifle. There's a big thing in hunting uh, called R3. And it's uh, retention, reactivation, and uh, retention, react. Oh, recruitment. Okay. So it be like building hunter numbers with an eye toward like, you know, funding, like keeping healthy funding structures for wildlife management and all that. And my brother has become deeply concerned about how crowded the woods might become. And he's now got um, D3. I can't remember how it goes, but it's like deactivation, yeah. deterrence. <laughs> <laughs> it just kills me man he's such a cynic but yeah um so to everybody out there walking in the woods for your first time do it uh as lightly as possible walk, walk quietly <laughs> bury your poop <laughs> thank you so much man thanks for having me on that's our show i'm gonna play you out with a song by mount saint Ilias. these guys listen to the podcast and they sent me some music this song is called everywhere ghost and you can click the link below in the description to check out more of their tunes if you're a musician you can send your music to info at kyle.surf that's also where you can send voice memos i love getting them from you just keep them under one minute email them to info at kyle.surf and i'd love to play them at the beginning of the show Kyle.surface, where you can also check out my weekly articles. I just released one on the legendary writer Tim Cahill, who we talked about a little bit in this podcast. Um, you can check that all out at Kyle.surf slash writing. Don't forget, you can head over to scmedicinals.com or rpmtraining.com. Type in the code name Kyle10 and get 10% off any order. And thank you so much to the Nell Newman Foundation for supporting each and every one of these podcasts. That's it for now. If you enjoyed it, please reach out to Steve and uh, maybe we'll be able to get him back on. Thank you so much for listening. Go get out in the water, whatever body of water you are closest to. I hope you enjoyed this song called Ghost Everywhere by Mount St. Ilias. to fall in love. I tried to find a girl to fuck me up. Cause even a heartsick love broke poet guy's a whole lot better than damn I used to know that guy. I tried to join the cause but everyone there could tell there was nothing behind my yell. I was there to brush shoulders with purpose. Where have you been, purpose, since you left last year? Purpose. I spent a lot of time here with worthless. It's always good to see you, purpose.
Girl, here and there and everywhere we go. 